from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. Happy December. <laughs> Happy December. Have you gotten me a uh, holiday present yet or not? Uh, I think I'm going to get you a Bike Talk t-shirt. A famed Bike Talk t-shirt. They are famous. You know, if our listeners give to Patreon, they could also get a Bike Talk t-shirt and support yeah. our show at the same time. You're going to hit them right at the beginning with the plug. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's the holidays. People are shopping. I think we're going to suggest that people support one of the authors that have been on Bike Talk. Well, we've been really lucky. We've had a lot of great authors on, and this is a great time to give a book. Let's say Two Wheels Good by Jody well, Rosen. That's one of my favorites, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. A wonderful, in-depth understanding of where the bike came from and where it's going. And we're going to play some of that later. But then some of the other books we've had, like we had a children's book author, Dashka Slater, who wrote Wild Blue. You know, that was a beautiful book, Nick. The drawings are amazing. She's riding a horse, but she's riding a bicycle. It's really a great children's book. I think the parents will like it also. We should have more children's book authors on the show. And uh, we've been talking a lot about Henry Grabar's book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. That's a real fun read that opens your eyes to how much space we give over to subsidize free automobile storage. Yeah. People love that book, Paved Paradise. Yeah. And um, Crossings, uh, Road Ecology by Ben Goldfarb. You know, he talks in that book how cars kill a million animals a day. But one of the great things about the book is it doesn't leave you feeling negative about all this infrastructure that we've put in to support the automobile, that there is a way out of it. We're starting to build animal crossings across freeways so that mountain lions and deers and all kinds of snakes can can get across from one breeding ground to another. Uh, what else was there? There was uh, Right of Way by Angie Schmidt. She was on. Black Champions in Cycling, Major by Taylor, me. Nelson Vales. And that was by Marla Moncrief. We had him on. Atanarama, Peter Norton. Lindsay did a great interview with him. It's really an excellent book that explains so much of what we're dealing with. Republic of Drivers, you just interviewed Cotton Seiler. You know, he talks so much about how, in many cases, driving wasn't a choice. It was sort of thrust upon us by what was going on in the world at the time and by statutes. And, and I think the car lobby had something to do with it. <laughs> the all-powerful car lobby. No, well, that's real. Yeah, uh, you're not kidding. We can't leave out If Thoreau Had a Bicycle. It's a wonderful book by Mark Kramer. Mark is a great storyteller. He lives just outside Paris, and he compares riding your bike around exurbs of Paris to Thoreau walking around the woods of New England. And what would Thoreau think of a bicycle had he had one and been able to ride one? Yeah, did they have bikes when Thoreau was alive? Well, Thoreau died in 62, 1862. And if you read Two Wheels Good, you would know that the penny farthing came out in the 1870s and 80s. But the safety bike, the bike that's so much like the bike that we ride today, didn't really come out till the late 1880s or 90s. So I think, uh, no, Thoreau did not have a bicycle. Wow. He would have loved it. And what else? Oh, the, the Walkable City by Jeff Speck. We've talked to all these people at length on Bike Talk about their books. And I think we're going to put them all on our website. You can order them, give them to your bike zealot for Christmas. Right. Give them to your bike zealot. I like that. So 
now that we've talked about something positive, let's talk about Fox News for a second. Do we have to? We could skip it. But we should talk about speeding. That's what started it all, right? Yeah. There was this incident where somebody went 103 miles per hour, crashed into a minivan, killed a family. And then in their recommendations looking into this incident, the NTSB- National Transportation and Safety Board. Recommended that this other agency, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, mandate speed limiters in all new cars. Of course, we applauded this. Absolutely. Why should e-bikes be capped at 28 miles per hour, but cars can be unlimited? But you know who was upset about it? I already gave it away. Laura Ingram, I think. They love Europe. They always want to be in Europe. They want to do the same thing here in the United States. Don't forget your constitutional rights. Those can be damned, even your movement controlled. The National Transportation Safety Board is recommending that all new vehicles get technology that makes speeding, quote, more difficult or completely impossible, following in Europe's footsteps. Joining me now, Ned Ryan, American Majority CEO and founder. Ned, this is why they love the lockdowns. They like to keep us all moving as little as possible permanently. Okay, that's enough. That's uh, enough. What, you know, I, I just Pete can't stand here, her what voice. Does Mayor Pete Get her off. <laughs> Back on the bike for him? Well, it's Laura Ingram, you said? Yeah, I think she so. She said they're trying to make it harder to speed, as if that was all that needed to be said. Right. You know, she says that they're taking away our freedoms. How about the freedom from killing people or get to where we need to go safely? This idea that a car can go 125 miles an hour, a good 45 miles an hour over the highest speed limit is ridiculous. Yeah. We're interviewing later in the show, Tim Lennon, who has a website and it's cyclingfallacies.com. And it's really just a list of misinformation about bicycles and it sets the record straight. But first we're going to talk to our lawyer, not about this, about something else. About riding on the sidewalk. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a young man on the show, Nick, who was riding his bike in Massachusetts and he was riding in the bike lane and the bike lane was blocked. And so he diverted his bike to the sidewalk and then he got hassled in the sidewalk by somebody. And he came on the show and we talked about some of the legalities, but you and I aren't lawyers. And we have Jim Pokras here of Pokras and De Los Reyes Law Office. And Jim said, this is one of the top questions he gets. So Jim, let me ask you, can you ride your bike on the sidewalk? As you said, that's one of the top questions that I'm asked all the time. Is it legal to ride ride on the sidewalks or not? In California, there are no specific statutes which allow or prohibit bikes from riding on the sidewalk. Um, Recently, there was AB 825 passed by the House and it was passed by the Senate And then it was vetoed by Governor Newsom. That law would have expanded the use of sidewalks. But the problem that we have now is that we don't have any statutes, so it throws it back on local governments to make their own traffic ordinances. And that's a big problem. That means that you can be riding on the sidewalk in one city and then cross an intersection into another city, and all of a sudden you are against the law. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. One area you're allowed to ride on the sidewalks and then in another area you're not. From district to district or from state to state, you know, there are areas where you are allowed to ride bikes in residential areas, but not in business districts. And so how does one know, you know, how they define a business district before they go riding? And and there's no way to know other than to be checking, you know, with the local places that you're going to be going into. 
Because just as an example, Beverly Hills in California, it defines a business district um, where you're not allowed to ride on the sidewalks, including churches, apartments, hotels, multiple dwellings, and clubs in any place where there's retail business. So when one asked me, you know, when am I allowed to ride on the sidewalk or not allowed to ride on the sidewalk, um, the only thing that I can tell them is that they would have to check if they're riding from one area to another on the sidewalk, they could be in violation of the of the local ordinances and not even know it. Are there different laws for adults than for children? There are not. And who are the people that are riding on the sidewalks? Primarily, they are children. People, when there's protected bike paths or markings on the roadway, people are on the roadway. But um, there are a lot of people that are afraid to go in on the streets because of vehicles, um, and they feel it's safer on the sidewalk. You know, is it safer to ride on the sidewalk, you know, where there's pedestrians and children and dogs and driveways and alleyways? Right. Um, and you have to be really careful when you're riding. Are the sidewalks properly maintained? Because you go on the sidewalks and you see that there's potholes or there's holes or unevenness on the on the sidewalks. And who's responsible if you fall off your bike as a result of a tree root or, you know, some sidewalk that's become into disrepair? There's nothing definitive that says who's going to be responsible for the sidewalks. And then it leaves it back to um, each individual local government entity. But they are responsible to make sure that it's safe for people that are riding on the sidewalk um, to ride safely. This would have been a good bill to get passed because it would have had one law for everybody. People would have known you know, where they stand or where they ride. And without such a law, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to be criminalized for riding their bike on the sidewalk. You're and we know exactly that that right. gives the police kind of uneven authority, right, Jim? Right. It does. Because um, as to whether they enforce it, one district versus another district gives them a lot of power, you know, with regard to criminalizing, you know, people that are riding on the, on the sidewalk where they think that they're doing it uh, properly. So I think that, you know, by vetoing, you know, this bill in California, um, what it really does, is it shifts the responsibility, you know, back to local advocates to present their case to local government to push them to allow, you know, more riding on sidewalks and not restricting it like they are now. Right. Well, that's why local advocates have to get involved on the local level and make sure that those laws in their own city are passed. Jim Pokras of Pokras and De Los Reyes. Thanks for coming on the show again and laying down the law. Well, thank you for having me. You know, one of the, the great things, Nick, about being on a bicycle is you can act like a vehicle, a car in one minute and ride on the road and take the lane. And if you need to, you can act like a pedestrian and be on the sidewalk. Yeah, that's the amphibious nature of the cyclist. Next, we have another piece of news. They took out a bike lane on a street in Detroit to put in electric charging for EVs on that street. Stacy Randecker and I did this interview with Todd Scott, the executive director of the Detroit Greenways Coalition. And here that is. So this is Todd Scott, executive director of Detroit Greenways Coalition. Todd, I just saw about the street in Detroit that charges electric vehicles that they ripped out bike lanes for. That's correct. What street is this, Todd? It's a small section of 14th Street, which is, if you know where the Michigan Central Station is, the big train station, 
It was recently purchased by Ford Motor Company. It ran along the east side of the train station and it continues further north. And it be, it's a major route for cyclists heading into the Corktown region and down to the river. One takeaway from this was that they took away a bike lane with no community input, right? But it would have taken all kinds of community input to put in a bike lane. City ordinance was introduced a couple of years ago that would require a public meeting and public notice whenever a bike lane went in. And this was in response to people complaining about bike lanes coming in and or just suddenly showing up in their neighborhood and them not being informed about it. So we said we will support that so long as you also have a public meeting anytime you remove a bike lane. And it's hard to argue for one and not the other. So we got our change included in the ordinance thanks to one of our bike-friendly council members. And since that time, a couple of bike lanes have been removed and there's been no public meetings. So it's very frustrating, but they're certainly following it whenever they add a new bike lane, having the public meetings and letting everyone know. I struggle a lot with the idea that we even have to have a meeting to provide safe passage for people outside of motor vehicles. Would you have a public meeting to decide if you're going to have a sidewalk in front of stores? That is exactly our our same position. It doesn't make sense to us. The roads are... are often changing all the time and it changes how people get around and we don't have meetings for every single time that happens. It's frustrating, but this was the compromise we settled on. There's a thought that this is the future for getting more electric vehicles on the road. If they can somehow magically charge as they're driving along, MDOT has put $1.9 million into this project to uh, make this one block of electric road. MDOT is not a monolith. They're not always bad. They're not always the evil one, but they need help from advocates like us to make sure they get steered in the right direction when they go off track. From the time I have spent in automotive, the physics is quite challenging in terms of how much charge you can actually get from inductive charging crossing over a road surface. I think it's hard enough doing it when the cars are parked because they've had this as a model that you could charge the cars when they're parked. So then the idea that you're doing this in city streets, why, why not put it in the highway instead? We don't have bike lanes on highways. Why on earth would you charge in our city streets? The quality of the pavement isn't that good. This technology is not only unproven, I can't imagine that it's going to be that effective. It's a complete boondoggle. I come from the auto industry too, and I believe it's a boondoggle too. I think it could work in a garage setting for someone who doesn't want to plug their vehicle in every night. But even still, it comes with problems. To put that in the road where there are other people walking, biking by, I'm not convinced that they've done enough health analysis of how this could impact people's health. If you have a pacemaker, would you really want to be near this road while it's emitting these strong pulses of energy? And the other thing that's been really portrayed in the media, but also by elected officials is that this is going to charge electric vehicles. And they don't mention that you have to have the special inductive charging unit attached to your vehicle, which costs money and adds weight and probably will reduce your range. So this is not some miracle solution. It's not like your phone charger but they often make it out to be. What you have to do to the vehicle to make this effective, what you have to do to the road to make this effective. And everybody who's even put their phone down on a charger, it's like, oh, sometimes it charges, sometimes it doesn't. You have to get that magic click for it to happen. And now you're going to have a whole freaking car driving over the road and yeah, they well, ripped out a bike lane for it. <laughs> well, and the other the other big issue too, that where the that phone charging analogy breaks down is that 
when you're charging your phone, it's not using that much electricity and you're either paying for it or someone else's. How do you bill people in a car that drives over a road and takes a charge from this electricity? Are you just going to be providing this electricity for free? There comes legal issues because then you become an electrical provider and that might require some changes to state law. So it opens a whole nother can of worms that I don't think people have thought about all that much. And it, it points in the direction that this probably won't be a viable solution, at least on public roads. Now, I think it could potentially work with public transit with EV buses where they're going to be stopped for a series of time in a certain location where you could do an inductive charging at that location. But it doesn't make sense to put it along a road. And even if you look at the financials of it, I, I believe Electrion, the company that put it in, put another $4 million into it or $6 million. And this is just for one block of city street. And, you know, we cannot afford multi-million dollar investments like this that charge vehicles that, for the most part, don't have these inductive chargers on them. It's nonsense. What could we afford? Bike lanes? For, for, bike lanes, right. They are going to be putting new bike lanes in on Michigan Avenue, along with another section of charging road. The issue we have in this area with MDOT right now is that there's a lot of pedestrian bridges that they've not been maintaining over the years, and they've closed three of them recently. In fact, one of the bridges, a pedestrian fell through the bridge. They tell us they don't have any money for it, but they can find money for these whimsical ideas. And the most recent Michigan budget, there was a $5 million included for a new bike and ped safety grant program. And we hardly celebrated it because there's $17 million in that same budget for drones, doing drone delivery. It's another whimsical idea that it's probably not viable and it's frustrating. The state's trying to get leadership in the mobility sector, but they're not making wise choices. And they don't think that to become a leader in mobility, they have to reduce traffic fatalities. They don't believe they have to increase biking and walking or increase bus um, transit in the city. They think they have to do these bright, shiny, flashy new things that aren't always viable. If the states, if this nation cared for its people, we would do more to help keep people healthier. Bikes do that. So often in the transportation world, people work in silos and they don't consider the health aspects of what they're doing. We see it all the time with climate change. MDOT doesn't see they, that they have a role in creating climate change or, or carbon emissions in the state. And they have a major role. They don't think they have a role in land use decisions in the state. They have a major role every time they widen a road. So people are stuck in these little silos that are, they're comfortable in. And we need more people breaking those silos down and looking at the bigger picture and lifting up things like walking and biking. And that was Todd Scott, executive director of Detroit Greenways Coalition and Stacey Randecker. And coming up now, we have Tim Lennon, as promised. He's the secretary of the Cycling Embassy of Great Britain, and he gives us some information to debunk some cycling myths. I know that many of the people who listen to Bike Talk have had some of the same experiences that I have had, that you're talking to a neighbor or a friend or possibly a NIMBY about the joys of biking, and they come back with some crazy myth or theory about biking will never work, or you're speaking at a town or civic meeting and you're asking the town council to put in a bike lane or whatever, and some NIMBY blurts out, bikes won't work here, or bikes are too dangerous, or whatever the fallacy is. In fact, this just happened to me on our last show when I interviewed uh, someone who had written an article about why biking will never save the world. 
Well, some of the myths that you hear are easy to combat when someone says, oh, people will never ride to the grocery store. Well, that's easy. I ride to the grocery store, you know, every other day. Others are a little bit harder to combat. And that's why I have my guest on the show today, Tim Lennon. Tim is the secretary of the Cycling Embassy of Great Britain, and they have created a website that you can go to called cyclingfallacies.com. Tim Lennon, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Taylor. First of all, what got you guys started in making this website, cyclingfallacies.com? Well, it was a um, it's a great question. It, it it was a bit of a team effort because the thing we really wanted to campaign for was was infrastructure, was changes to our built environment to make it possible to you know for for, for people as as you said in well, I think one of your previous talks, people eight to eighty to get on a bike and and just do the thing they want to do. I think about a year or so in, we were having a discussion one evening, and someone said, "Well, look, I've got a like a." I've got a, a checklist, uh, like a spread, you know, people had spreadsheets and shared documents and all these sorts of things with all these different pieces of data and information they had to to refute really a wide range of the arguments we kept coming up against. And someone said, well, we could probably actually make people's lives easy by bringing them all together. We were trying very hard to to narrow down the issues that people were trying to address and to make them really clear so that anybody could come to the site, you know, basically pro or anti-biking and see see the fallacy and get the explanation really simply and clearly. Let's jump right in with some of these myths and some of the responses to them. This is one I heard just the other day. Cyclists don't pay for the roads. They shouldn't <laughs> be able to use the roads if they don't pay for them. How do you combat that? It's the evergreen one, isn't it? So, so in the UK, we have a... Um, Someone a while ago actually made, made good money with a website called ipayroadtax.com. And um, <clears throat> he'd done the analysis and he'd done the bit of, a, bit of a digging. And if your vehicle is zero emission, you don't actually pay any vehicle tax. And it, it rises up according to your emission levels. And then, of course, there's taxes on, on your, your petrol, what you call your gas, diesel. And those are much, much higher here than in the US. Right. But so... What does gas sell for in the UK? I pay pound fifty a litre. And there's about... How many litres are in a gallon? There's about four litres in a gallon. So I pay about £7 a gallon, which is about $11, $12 maybe. Wow. It's quite a bit cheaper in the United States. And that's why you're home of the... Uh, of the, of the full bore V8 and so on, isn't right. it? Right, of the gas-guzzling SUVs yes. that kill our roads. Well, you have one here, and, and this is one I hear all the time, that you know roads are too narrow for bikes. Roads yeah. are for cars. Bikes should be on the side of the road, not in the middle of the lane. How do you combat something like that? Uh, well, as you can imagine, in Europe, where you know we've got many much, much older cities and towns, it's an absolutely live issue for us. And really, the the basic statement is 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 true. You know, a a road. You know, on a, on a normal road, if you've got you know through a through a town centre, if you've got cars going through there, there is no space to put a bike lane. But of course, then you then you're following through the argument. Well, yes, that's true. But what would you prefer to be going through your town centre? Would you prefer your town centre streets to be focused on people who are visiting and using the town centre? 
or would you prefer them to be focused on people who are just trying to avoid the nearby busy road that uh, that is gridlocked? Because that's, you know, what tends to happen in many of our town centres. I had a really interesting conference at the weekend with um, run by London Cycling Campaign. And the CEO made a really interesting statement there. And he said, we've won the argument on the data, on the actual facts of the matter of whether cycling is a good thing, whether it benefits society. Because actually, when you look at, you know, like, for example, the shopping, when you look at parking and you look at how parking is used, you look at when you actually go to stores and you interview people who are going to the store and find out how they got there, for obviously this is unless you're going to kind of big out of town, you know, big box retailer or, or right. shopping mall type area, then what you'll invariably find is that people who drive don't tend to make up as big a proportion of the customers as the retailers think. And, you know, that's not to give the retailers a hard time because they're not experts in urban planning, are they? They're experts in trying to keep their business running. To me, that's actually an interesting one where I think a lot of cycle campaigners probably need to be a bit more sympathetic and a bit more empathetic to the other point of view. Because, of course, you know, retailers, they don't want their businesses to go under. Actually, you know, we don't want their businesses to go under. But it's it's always a challenging discussion with them saying, well, yes, but if you had seven bike, park, bike parking spaces outside the store, that's seven customers rather than one. How about we can't put a bike lane in here because the bike facilities that we already have, no one uses them. <laughs> yes. I had a great example of this um, uh, earlier in the week, someone complaining about a, a bike lane near me. And of course, the the the, the, the argument we t- I would tend to say is, well, any bike, any cycling facility is as good as its worst junction. So if you've got a rubbish junction at one end. And like- by junction, you mean an intersection. That, yes, that's right. Almost any intersection, any place where a road or pavement, you know, crosses that facility um, or you need to cross, you know, whatever to get there. And the other thing is, is looking at some of the facilities and people saying, well, no one rides here. And I would look at them. I wouldn't ride there either. It's terrible. It's, you know, <laughs> that looks dangerous without me even touching it. Right. Why would anybody ride there in the first place? Yeah, that's something that we say here a lot is that in the United States, we're building cycling infrastructure for a very small percentage of the population, one or two percent of, you know, sort of hardcore, serious bike riders, not really for everyday people to ride for transportation, for errands. So, so a so- lot of the reason why these some of these cycling facilities are not being used is because they're not well designed. They're not safe. They're not safe at the intersections. It's just a strip of paint. But I would also argue that they are used and you just don't see them because there's not a traffic jam in a bike lane ever. That's also a really, really good example. So in central London, in the 2010s, we started building proper cycling facilities and we started linking them up. And what we find is that even though I, you know, there have been times when I've waited three light sequences to get onto, onto, you know, from one part of the bike lane to the other because it's been so busy. Wow. Um, and then the minute I'm through the junction, because bikes are so space efficient, it instantly looks like it's virtually empty again. Right. Cyclists should wear high visibility clothing and wear helmets and, and protective gear and all of that. How do you respond to that? 
The best example I've heard is is how Dutch police talk about this. So it was a um, it was it was a cracking little video someone did of how Dutch cyclists behave in Amsterdam. Dutch cyclists when they're in Amsterdam, that is just ordinary people on bikes. So you have the whole range from you know eco warriors through to people who frankly are absolute sociopaths. And they, they really, you know, I've tried riding in Amsterdam and you do have to keep your wits about you a bit more than usual. Right. Um, but what, what they showed was that was that it doesn't really matter, actually, what cyclists wear or do. I know that there's another good study in the UK that uh, I think Professor Ian Walker did, where he, he basically did passing tests wearing different outfits to see how close people would pass you. And actually, the more gear you wore, the close they would pass. But in terms of actual be actually being safe, most of that kit makes no difference whatsoever because the reality is that the, that the danger doesn't arise from you or your visibility. It arises from the, from the vehicles around you. Right. I guess the best example I would say is every time you've heard someone saying, oh my God, look at that cyclist. They're not, they don't have any high vis, they don't have any lights. Well, yes, but you've seen them. <laughs> if you've seen the cyclist that you're worried about not being able to see what <laughs> right and you know another one that i often hear is los angeles or the united states or any city in the united states is not amsterdam is not copenhagen is not even the uk it will never work here cycling will never work in the united states it's a fair observation that many of the distances involved in for example some of the some of the suburban areas are much longer than you might normally choose to cycle. But the two things that you that I would say to that is if you if you when you build cycling facilities well, is that people use them. They'll use them for part journeys. This is what we're really finding in London is not the cycle, the cycling bit will replace an entire journey. It will do, for example, I'll ride to the bus stop or I'll ride to the train station. Um, I'll do part of the journey by bike, then I get the other end, and I get a higher bike or something. And in your, you know, in, in in places like Indianapolis, like LA, you know, it should work the same way. But the other big argument is e-bikes. A good e-bike will do fifteen and a half miles an hour without any huge amount of effort on the part of the rider. And what we, you know, what the what the data seems to be showing in the in the Netherlands, across Europe, and actually in the UK as well is that e-bikes are making a radical difference to the length of journeys people are choosing to take. They're taking much, much longer journeys because of the convenience and and the ability to get there quickly. Right. It also opens up the amount of people who can ride the bike. Cyclists should require a license and they must register their bikes. How do you answer that? I basically say it's pointless. It's a waste of money. So for any registration scheme, you'd really want the scheme to pay for itself. You'd want the cost of the registration to at least balance the cost cost. of the red tape. Yeah, I can understand the motivation behind it because because they think it will make a difference to our ability to 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 safely police people who are cycling. And let's face it, we all know people who get on a bike and probably do need a bit more policing activity than they actually get. But they are a minority and we'd be we'd be dissuading and making life harder for the majority of people who just get on a bike and get on with it for no obvious purpose. Well, Tim, your website, cyclingfallacies.com, is really wonderful. I highly recommend that our listeners check it out. It has all kinds of 
myths and theories about why cycling won't work, why it's bad for society. And your website knocks every single one of those down. So thanks for coming on Bike Talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for time. Best of luck with the podcast. And that was Tim Lennon of the Cycling Embassy of Great Britain and his website, cyclingfallacies.com. Check it out. We were talking at the top of the show about stocking stuffers, about, you know, gifts to give cycling zealots. And one of my favorite books was my interview with with Jody Rosen, who wrote Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. So here's that interview. Today, we have a special guest, Jody Rosen, who has written the new book, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. And the first thing I want to talk about with Jody is I read a lot of bicycle books, but most of them are written by cyclists, and they're not really all that well written necessarily. I read a lot of urban planning books and a lot of bicycle revolution books, and they're wonderful books. I really enjoy them, but they're written, it seems to me, by cyclists. And Jody is a writer. So hi, Jody. Welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, Taylor. I'm so happy to be here. What made you write a book about biking? Because I'm looking at your resume of all the stuff you've written. You do have a lot of sports stuff that you write about, but it really covers the map. I love Greta. Um, I'm blanking on her name now. The little girl versus Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. Uh, yeah. Thank you. What made you write this book? Well, you know, I love bicycles. I mean, I love them with a passion and it's the way I get around period. So for my entire adult life and much of my childhood, the bicycle was my only means of transport other than my two legs. And I prefer (laughs) two wheels to two legs. So that was it. First and foremost, my personal passion for riding a bike and maybe a little like you, Taylor, I don't know. When I'm not on a bike, I feel like half myself. I don't feel as good off a bike as I do on one. And I think that's especially true in a place like New York, because it can be kind of a pain in the ass to get around here in general. (laughs) there's too many people and public transportation is bad. There's too much traffic, but on a bike, I feel free and I feel alive. So there's that first and foremost, but also because I love bikes so much, I've always been really interested in reading about them myself. So I've kind of vacuumed up a lot of the literature and bicycle is a fascinating history. And I've always been interested in that history and read a lot of those books, but felt that there was just a little opening for a book like this. As you say, there's a lot of books that are written by professional cyclists, sports cyclists. And the truth is I have less than no interest in sports cycling. It's just not the kind of writing that I do. I don't have anything against it. I'll watch a basketball game or a soccer game till the cows come home, but I've just never even watched the Tour de France. Well, I got to jump in there because watching the Tour de France is great. I mean, it's really one of the pleasures. My dad says the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, like you, have cycled all my life. And I lived in New York City from 85 to about 92. And I just biked everywhere. I agree 100%. In fact, you even have a great line. It must be in the critical mass section of the book where you say the bicycle is like the perfect speed for observation. You're not going too slow where you get bored of your surroundings, yet you're not going too fast, surrounded by steel and glass. It's just such a wonderful way to see the city and to learn about the city. And I think safe. I mean, New York has gotten so much better since the 80s when I was riding so much. And now with the West Side and all the bike lanes and things like that, it's really changing it. Yeah, it's definitely not like the Wild West that it was back in the 80s, 90s. I was biking around then too, and it was far less safe. Although I have to say, because now there are so many more bicycles on the roads, which is a great thing. Right. 
and there are also more cars. So it just feels like a pretty seething environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't exactly feel safe, but the truth is the trade-off for me is there's not any question of not biking because yeah. it's a risk I'm willing to take because it's just such a, as you say, pleasant way to get around. And also the best way I know to really imbibe New York and kind of even comprehend New York. If I'm on my yeah. bike, I feel like I'm connected to the city and I'm You're taking part of the city. off. Yeah. But the other thing, reading books about bicycles and that history, that stuff really fascinated me, but I felt like there's a lot of a certain kind of a book about bicycles, not just the ones that are about sports cycling, but the ones that talk about the bicycle that almost idealize the bicycle a little too much. As romantic and sentimental as I feel yeah. about the bike, I felt like there was room for a kind of a book that looked at it a little bit more, not skeptically, but just tried to take in all dimensions of the bicycle story. So I tried to do a little of that in this book. So it was really fun. You know, whenever I write a long article about some topic, I invariably reach the point where I'm sick of the topic I'm writing right. about and I just want it to go away. That's not true of this. This is the first thing I've ever written where I- You want more. I want more. Yeah. Well, we're really lucky that you wrote it. I read the review in the New York Times and I think the next day, I live in Los Angeles in West Hollywood and I went down to the Grove where there's a big Barnes and Noble and I bought a hardcover book, Two Wheels Good. I haven't bought a book at Barnes and Noble in yeah. 10 years, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's not that long. But it was such a treat to read the review and go to the bookstore and get the book and come home and start reading it. Because I have been a cyclist for so long, I do know a lot about the history of the bike and all that. But your book is broken down into chapters. And early on, you talk about the development of the bike, which I thought was really interesting. I knew that the safety bike came out in the 1860s, 1870s, and that the loft machine was in the 1810s or 20s. But I didn't realize that in the course of development, the bicycle was really so late. It was after the steam engine and all of that. And you say in that one chapter that all of the things that were necessary to create the bicycle were around much earlier, but they were never put together. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about why you think that happened and what led to that discovery, whether it was just the fact that it was two wheels rather than four or the drivetrain or whatever it was. I just found that really interesting. And then hang on to that. And then I wonder if you can extrapolate from that as to why there is so much backlash to the bicycle. To the first part of the question, I mean, it's definitely a curiosity, right? It doesn't make all that much sense that the bicycle should have arrived this late in history. It's sort right. of illogical because as you say, the technology necessary to build a bicycle is around since the early middle ages, but yet it took literally centuries for there just to be this kind of eureka moment where someone yeah. thought, why didn't we think of that? Crucial breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? If you think about it, there were machines that had just two wheels, right. but they arranged them on either side of an axle, right? So like a wheelbarrow or something right. like that. Whereas with the bicycle, the breakthrough was to say, let's put them in a line one right. in front of the other right. and kind of hook them up, put something that connects the two. And I think it really is the model of the horse because, you know, of course, today we still call the thing you sit on that's connected to the seat post a saddle. Right, right. right. So it's very much modeled on the horse. And that first Lauf machine, that proto bicycle, which was invented around 1817, didn't have the drivetrain. It didn't even have pedals. It's like those push bike or those little strider bikes, they call it, that little kids, the learn kids learn. Learn on a bike. Yeah. And people propelled it by scooting their feet across the ground. But the guy who invented this thing in the Duchy of Baden in the German Federation around 1817, this guy, Carl von Dreis, what he did was he said, okay, I'm going to build this kind of replacement horse. He called it a running machine. Right. That's what Laufmaschine means in German, right? And the idea is you're kind of straddling the device, using your feet to scoot across the ground. And so I think it was just simply that insight. Strangely, it took one guy 
who just had a flash of inspiration, you know? But that was 1817. Then it wasn't until the 1860s with the penny farthing with a crank. And then it was another 10 years until they added the drivetrain. I mean, it just seems like, oh my God, you guys figure this thing out. For sure. A long, long process of trial and error. (laughs) In hindsight, you're like, what the hell, guys? It's right there. It's right there. But yeah, it was in 1885 that we finally got the so-called safety bicycle where they hooked up the drivetrain and you had the diamond-shaped frame and the two wheels. Well, first, they weren't quite equal size. They were close to equal size. But very soon after the invention of the safety bicycle, you had two equal size wheels. And suddenly you had a bicycle, which indeed was safe, unlike the penny farthing with a huge front wheel and the little one in the back, because even mounting one of those things is tricky. I don't know if you've ever tried to ride one. You know, I never have ridden one and I would love to try Me too. I haven't ridden one either. Although back then the thing was people were very prone to what they called doing a header, pitching over the handlebars, right? I'm very unscared on a bicycle, often to my detriment. But I think on a penny's farthing, I'd be freaked out. And of course the penny farthing, as you say, had the drive right on the wheel itself, which is an inefficient way to move a machine and an unsafe one. So, So yeah, it took a long time for this to happen. And I think this is part of the reason why one thing we see in the history is people imagining that the bicycle existed earlier in history. So there's been lots of kind of hoaxes and people proclaiming that they knew that there were bicycles in antiquity or Egyptians were riding around on bicycles because it just feels illogical to us that there should have been a time when there wasn't a bicycle. Or I love the bit about the bicycle window in England. But see, see, there was a bike a long time ago. And I don't know that we know actually what that was, do we? No, there's this weird piece of stained glass, which is in a church in a place called Stoke Poges in Buckinghamshire. You have to love England. Stoke Poges, Buckinghamshire. I mean, it's just like... I know, I know. All these names. (laughs) No, no, it's not Lansing. (laughs) Exactly. This is like one of these beautiful country churches. It's such an evocative place. And they have this piece of stained glass. They're depicting some kind of, looks like a cherub or like some sort of enchanted being. Mm -hmm rattling some kind of device, which looks like it might be a two-wheeled device. So people took this thing and the providence of that, that thing was created in maybe the 15th century, maybe the 16th century, something like that. No one knows much about that piece of stained glass, right. but because it looks kind of, sort of like a bicycle, people for years pilgrimage to this church in order to look at this thing and say, hey, there's the first bicycle. Again, they couldn't accept the fact that the bicycle is relatively recent invention. It doesn't add up. Right. I wonder if you can connect the fact that the bike was so late to this idea of bike lash. We often hear about people pushing back against the bike first when the horse was around. And of course, now with the car and all of that. And I wondered if it occurred to you, because it sort of occurred to me a little bit reading the book, that maybe that had something to do with this idea of we all missed the boat on this thing. So therefore, we're angry at the bicycle or something, because it's really amazing. Some people hate bikes and hate people who ride bikes. And I just have never understood that. That is really interesting. I hadn't ever thought of that, that it's relatively late arrival might be behind the idea that the bicycle is like illegitimate or something. It could be because among other things, I point out that the steam locomotive was invented like 15 years before we got the bicycle. And the year that the safety bicycle was built, 1885, is the same year that Carl Benz, the guy who we know from Mercedes-Benz, He created his first motor Wagen that year. So the fact is the bicycle, it sort of was an anachronism at birth. And so you may be right. That might have heightened the idea or the feeling among certain people 
that the bicycles has no right to be on the road because yeah. definitely right from the beginning, there was resistance to it back in 1819 when the bicycle first reached, for instance, London, where there were a lot of these, what they called velocipedes or these laugh machines had different words in different countries. But people thought that the roads were rightly the domain of horse-drawn carriages right. and horses and sidewalks, pavements were where people walked around. So the bicycle had no rightful claim place. to any place, right? Yeah. And that has definitely continued straight through to the present day. Right. So we see those same arguments about the illegitimacy of the bicycle on the road is exactly what we see today. And that was arguably the fiercest backlash to bicycles are still ongoing, but it definitely was in the period of the 1890s during the great right. turn of the century bicycle boom, when you had suddenly millions of people on bicycles, people from all walks of life. And they were definitely viewed as both a menace to horse-drawn vehicles, right. to people's life and limb, and also a threat to the social order because right. suddenly you had women riding around on them and working class people. And there was a lot of moral panic over the bicycle in this period. Well, I blame a lot of that. Do you know John Forrester? Do you know who that is? Who's that? He's a bicycle advocate who in the 1970s and 80s fought very hard to not create separate infrastructure for bicycles and wanted bicycles to act more like cars. And that's how you and I probably ride the bike. As a vehicular cyclist, we ride our bike like we would drive a car. But he was very prominent in arguing that bikes shouldn't have their own space. And I think now we are finally coming out of that, where we are understanding that bikes need their own space. We see that a lot in Europe. My wife is Spanish from Barcelona, and we spend a lot of time there. And the city of Barcelona has changed drastically in the 20 or so years that I've been going there. And now they have carved out a little bit of space almost everywhere for safe biking. And that means that people besides you and me and Lance Armstrong can yeah. ride their bike to pick up a loaf of bread, a bottle of wine or something like that, get a coffee. Maybe that's your next book to talk about something like that, because I really feel like he set us back years it's absolutely the case that we need this infrastructure. And the cities that are bicycling cities, famously places in Northern Europe, like Copenhagen and Co Amsterdam. Right. Yeah. One thing that's important to recognize about those places is they formerly were car cities, you know? Right. Right. So people tend to think of them, oh, that's just Northern Europe. No, there was policies that were implemented and there was activism that brought about those changes. And now those places are so pleasant to be in and safe places to ride your bike. And they ride them in all sorts of weather up there. And all the reasons that are usually thrown at cyclists about you can't possibly commute on a bike because what if you get wet in the rain or what if you're sweating and you're at work? It's not an issue in these places because they have the proper infrastructure. They have right. safe places that are separated from the roads where the cars run. But it's definitely true. The people who are really working on these problems, the urbanists who understand what we need in the cities in the future. And I'm curious to hear what you think about how this could possibly work in a place like Los Angeles, which is car culture to the end. But they say we just need to move cars off the road in various ways, in part by making it inconvenient to drive your car. So get rid of curbside parking. Yeah. Build greenways, make it more pedestrian and bicycle and, and transportation alternative friendly. Yeah, yeah. And if there's not a place to park your car. Then you can't drive your car. Right, right. <laughs> Ah, totally. And that's what they've done in Barcelona is just make it difficult and also expensive, but really just difficult. And that's what we talk a lot about on this show is how do we move a city like LA forward and get us out of that spending a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk. But before we get into all of that stuff, you have a great chapter. I don't think it's called bike porn, but I really love the chapter on bike porn because for me, Bike porn was always a magazine, like Winning Magazine or Bicycle Magazine, or Bike Porn was a movie about bicycles. But there really was bike porn. 
And I wonder if you could talk about your research in that. There was bike porn and there most certainly <laughs> is bike porn to this day. But yeah, the curious thing about the bicycle as a mechanism, of course, is that ideally you achieve a kind of melding of the human frame and the bicycle frame, right? right. The bike rider is both a passenger and an engine. And an engine, right. Yeah. So for that reason, it functions as a kind of prosthesis or like an extension of your body. And so there's some kind of vague, you want to call it erotic, straddling a bike and riding it around. Okay, I don't want to press too hard on that, but it's definitely an idea that captivated the imagination of people across the decades and centuries. So there's definitely in modernist literature of the turn of the century, there are some quite heavy duty passages, which imagine various acts being performed on and with bicycles. And there are genres of pornography, which date right back to the bicycle boom of the 1890s. There were photographs taken of naked people on bicycles. And now if you care to plumb the depths of the internet, you can find real bicycle porn. But one thing that's interesting about some of the bicycle porn that I discovered was that there's kind of like an alternative, maybe left of center bicycle porn, which isn't just about people like having sex with bicycles. Right. Some of what you can find on these sites, people slung over the bicycle having sex, but it's actually, it's kind of like naked people riding bikes. And then the camera is just really looking at the drivetrain or, you know (laughs) know what I mean? So it's really, it's doing true bicycle pornography. Right, 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 right. (laughs) At the gears, at the derailleur, Campagnola. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we all know that for some people, Campagnola or, yeah, you know, it's, totally. it's an erotic. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to the bike show. There's a yearly bike show. When I was in New York, I used to go. And when you would go to the Campagnola booth, they would put the Campagnola super record in this glass case and they would light it just a certain way and people would drool over it. So that's right. That's yeah. right. And also when you look back at some of the advertisements, you see the picture of the woman bare chested with a flowing garment behind her as she flies on the bicycle or something like that. So I never really put those two together, but I guess that's kind of what it was. It was sexualizing the freedom of the bicycle, the movement of the bicycle. For sure, because among other things, it was a connection that made some sense just in terms of what was going on in the culture and in the social world during these periods. Because of course, the bicycle in the 1890s bicycle boom, famously embraced by the new woman, by feminists of the period as a means of personal and collective emancipation and suffragists like women who were advocating for the right to vote, rode the bicycles en masse to these protests right. and things like that. Changes in dress, women suddenly wearing, wearing skirts, but they're wearing pants, these, these kind of MC Hammer pantaloons. Right, right, bloomers, right, right? Hammer. You're so, dating yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he definitely brought the bloomer back, right? right. But uh, So the thing is, the bicycle was a means of emancipation. It was associated with all kinds of liberation, including a kind of backlash against the Victorian norms. Yeah. So this idea that riding a bicycle, you were liberated in all kinds of ways, including sexually made some sense. And also those famous images you were talking about of naked nymphs or goddesses pedaling bicycles in space, that was just good advertising. You know what I mean? And there were a lot of bikes on the market back then, and they had to find novel ways to sell them. And we all know that on a bicycle, you do feel free. So hold on. So are you saying that advertisers used beautiful young women to sell a product? Can you believe it? Hard to wrap your mind around that one. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) There's a chapter on rickshaws and I really liked how you started, even the chapter on bike porn, you kind of started with bike porn and made fun of it a little bit, but then segued into the vulnerability of the cyclist, which I thought was so great because we really are vulnerable out there. And you did the same thing, I think, in the chapter about DACA and rickshaws and all of that. I think you call it the beast of burden is the name of the chapter. And I loved that so much because 
biking has changed my life in how I run errands and do things. I have an old Bianchi that I bought when I lived in Aspen, Colorado. And I love the story. I bought it off a drug dealer in Aspen, Colorado in 1984. (laughs) And he said to me at the time, I guarantee you, if you keep biking, one of these two will live. Either you'll keep biking or you'll keep doing drugs, but you won't keep doing both. (laughs) And I still have the bike. So awesome. So that's, that's good. Awesome. So but, I want to know, was he delivering drugs on that bike? Because I don't know if you've seen high maintenance. You know, yes, I have. <laughs> I totally have. Well, it's really funny. I don't know if you know Aspen very well, but there's a great road that goes up to the Maroon Bells and it goes from like 7.9 to like 11.5 wow. altitude. And he took me out on the bike for a ride before I bought it. And I couldn't make it to the top. We had to stop multiple times to get up to the top. But when we finally got to the top, he pulls out a great big fat joint. And in the summertime, they close that road to automobiles. So it's just hikers and bikes. And there's a few tourist buses, but it's like a 17 mile ride from Aspen up to the top of the Maroon Bells. And we smoked the joint. And then we had this 17 mile ride downhill. Oh, man. And when we got to the bottom, I was like, dude, you sold me. I mean, I'm hooked (laughs) on biking. I'd always been a biker, but that was just something else. But going back to your book, The idea that it really is a work multiplier is really the truth. I mean, you can do so much more on a bike. I can go to the grocery store and the hardware store. And when there was a video store and the video store all in one loop and get it done twice as fast as I can in a car. And I just thought you might want to talk a little bit about the gentleman you met. I'm blanking on his name, but it was such an interesting story of the rickshaw walla. You know, there's a great documentary about those people who have to stand with their hand on a car for weeks at a time or whatever, and they do it for a truck. And one guy says, you can make money with a truck and you can't make money with a car. And I think that's so interesting. And I feel the same way about the bicycle. You can make money with a bicycle where you can't just on foot. I mean, I guess you can with a car, but I just thought you might want to talk a little bit about that chapter because I thought that was so interesting. For sure. That's one of the chapters in the book that's closest to my heart. And it's a fascinating topic because a crucial fact about the bike is that a bicycle can bear 10 times its own weight. So it really is a good device for schlepping stuff around town. But in much of the world, bicycles really function as cargo vehicles or pedal-driven devices function as cargo vehicles. Over here, we often think of bicycles as machines for leisure or for sport or for lifestyle. But most of the bicycles in the world are in the global South. That is the developing world, Asia, Africa, Latin America. And those are places where bicycles function as carriers of cargo, both raw materials, goods, and of people in the form of these pedal-driven rickshaws. So where I went was Dhaka, Bangladesh. That's the capital of Bangladesh, which is the world's fastest growing and most densely settled megacity, a place where there are 24 million people squeezed into a tiny area, relatively speaking, where there are very few good roads, very few roads, period. So the traffic problems there are just off the charts. And the only way anything gets done in Dhaka and anybody or anything ever arrives anywhere is because they have these wonderful cargo tricycle. They have the cargo tricycles that are mounted with a flatbed, which people use, again, to bring goods of various sorts to markets and across the city. Everything you can name as high as a house on back of these tricycles weaving through the streets. And then there are the rickshaws, which are really like the yellow cabs here in New York prior to the rise of Uber. The town is just dominated by some estimates, well over a million of these rickshaws. Sure, these beautifully decorated things that men, rickshaw pullers, or as they call them over there, rickshaw wallas, 
pedal through the traffic clogged cities. And it was a really fascinating experience for me because the men who do this job are very poor. Many mm. of them are dirt poor. They mostly live in slums, often in shanties. Many of them are migrant from right. rural Bangladesh who come to earn money and then go back to their home villages during the season of the harvest. But it was, for me, a very eye-opening experience of seeing the bicycle function as both a cargo vehicle and as labor and livelihood as opposed to lifestyle. One fact that I discovered when I was doing the work on that chapter is the fact a recent study has shown that there are between 40 and 60 million of these cargo tricycles working in China alone, wow. schlepping stuff around the streets, right. mostly urban China. And that number exceeds by many times the total number of cargo ships, cargo trains, cargo planes, and trucks in the world. Right. They don't even come close to equaling the number of tricycles that are in China alone. Wow. So bicycles are playing a very important role in our economy that's hidden to most of us. And just yeah. one more thing on this is when I came back to New York after having spent this time in Dhaka, in this mega city in South Asia, it was only really that experience that opened my eyes in a new way to the working cyclists of this city. Because of course, there are all these delivery cyclists sure. here who are bringing the food back that you right. order now on apps, right. back and forth, right. delivering the Thai food that I ordered to my door. Right. Right? right. And that's been a big labor issue here in New York recently with the treatment of those mostly immigrant. And you talk about that at the end of the book, about the pandemic and about how they were really essential workers for the most part, but we weren't banging our pots and pans at 7 p.m. necessarily for the bicycle delivery kit or something like that. You don't have a lot of pictures in the book, but one of the great pictures that you do have is the picture of DACA and all the cycling um, rickshaws in the street. It is just curb to curb or maybe even beyond the curbs. 100%. In fact, just go to YouTube and drop in DACA rickshaws or whatever, and you will bring up some footage where you can really see what it's like on the ground there. And it is full on. If you love cities, I recommend going to a place like DACA because it is an experience of maximum city. It's city to the nth degree. Right. And there's tons of problems there, many of which are caused by the places in the West. A lot of the problems that they have on the ground there are the fault of this country and our leaders. But It's really also a beautiful and amazing place. And to be in a place where there's just pedal-driven vehicles, as far as the eye can see, is an eye-opening experience for those of us who live in places like New York and LA, which are really car cities. Well, thanks for bringing us Two Wheels Good. And you know, Nick, it's out in paperback now, which is really great. So yeah, we should put these on their website, bitalk.org. Hopefully it'll be up before Christmas. Or just a birthday. It could be anything. Remember, if you like the show, give us a thumbs up on social media. We'll see you there too. Ride safe. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the Law Offices of Pokras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. (laughs) 